Hi, you're listening to Mayor Apolis, a conversation with mayoral candidates of Minneapolis and co-founders of the Theater of Public Policy. Our typical podcast show involves us taking an interview from one of our live shows where we do improv comedy about a political issue or social idea. Uh, In this case, we decided that we wanted to get the candidates going deeper than talking points to say not only what they wanted in the city, but what policies they'd pursue to make it happen and how they'd get them done. Our guest this episode is Nakima Levy-Pounds. A former law professor, civil rights attorney, and blogger, Nakima Levy-Pounds has been working for social and racial justice in Minnesota and beyond for years. She also previously served as the president of the Minneapolis NAACP. The conversation with Levy-Pounds touched on how her approach to engaging and convening citizens would differ from previous mayors, how she would aim to shrink or close the wealth and opportunity gaps in the city, and her views on handholding. So, hello, my name is Tane Danger. I am the co-founder of, I forgot what I was for a second. I is the co, I am the co-founder of the Theater of Public Policy with Brandon Boat, who's here. And we've been doing a series of interview conversations with the folks running for mayor of Minneapolis. Uh, they've been uh, fun, I think. They've been fun for us. Uh, Seemingly, people have enjoyed uh, them. And uh, today, we're very excited. We have with us uh, Nikima Levy-Pounds, who actually has been uh, on our show, The Theater of Public Policy, before. uh, In your previous role as head of the NAACP here in Minneapolis, Uh, and you actually did an election night with us, I think, like uh, two or four years ago, which was uh, really fun. Uh, so Mid-term thank you so much. Elections, yeah. Yes. Um, so I've been starting all of these podcasts with just a sort of straightforward, but I think important question, which is, uh, and I'm actually really interested for you in particular, why mayor? Why are you running for mayor in particular? Uh, I, a lot of folks know you and you uh, and the work that you've done, uh, again, as sort of head of the NAACP in Minneapolis and with Black Lives Matter and uh, even your law work and whatnot. And so I think a lot of I at least wonder, you know, why is mayor the right place to do what you want to do? What is it that you could do as mayor that you can't do in some of these other roles? Well, I would say the same thing that white candidates do who are running for mayor that they couldn't do in these other roles. I mean, outside of Betsy Hodges, who's the current mayor, I think the question is applicable yeah. to any particular candidate. Right. Some people are specifically asking about me running for mayor because we have not seen um, more than one African-American person in right. that position in the history of the city of Minneapolis. And so in some ways it's an anomaly to have a, a black woman yeah. who is running for the city's top leadership position. Uh-huh. I, no, I think that that's entirely fair. And like I said, we've been asking this of everybody. Cause, so what is, it, what is it that you want to do or you feel like if I was mayor, I can do this in that role? Uh, that's, that's, you need to be mayor in order to do that. Right. So I will elaborate on my (laughs) my first answer, but I had to get that out there because race does play a role in terms of some of the questions that I'm asked. Um, And I'm not shy or fearful about dealing with the elephant in the room. So I had to respond. Yeah. No. Now I'm now. Should I should I be nervous? Should I? No, I shouldn't. It's okay. I don't think you should Uh, be nervous. I think you should be open. I know. Good. Because part of what I plan to do as mayor is to help to shift the paradigm in the city. 
And part of that means directly tackling issues that many of us shy away from. And also making sure that when we're thinking about the resources that the city has to offer, how those resources are allocated, who's at the decision-making table. As mayor, I would have an opportunity to have significant input um, into those particular decisions and the conversations around them. So that's uh, that's a great entryway into some of the things we wanted to ask about. So uh, resources, uh, can you talk to us uh, specifically where is somewhere that uh, resources are not being put right now or not enough of them are being put where if you were mayor, they would be, that that would change. So it would look different. So there are a number of areas in which um, resources are not strategically placed uh, in the right position. So one, of course, has to do with affordable housing. Mm -hmm. We have a major affordable housing crisis in the city of Minneapolis. And unfortunately, the powers that be have been dragging their feet in terms of dealing with the crisis. I think we should have seen this coming years ago and put a strategic plan in place, put resources aside. One of the studies that I looked at even talked about the rate of evictions in the city of Minneapolis and how people of color are disproportionately impacted by evictions. Well, the average person who faces eviction owes about $2,000 in rent. That is a very small amount in the grand scheme of things in terms of being able to keep a family from being displaced. The disruption that happens to young people who are in school when their family has to move around or they have to live in a shelter, $2,000 is a small investment for the city as well as stakeholders to make to ensure that families are able to stay in their homes. So would that be maybe uh, an actual program then? The city would have a fund or something like that set up to help keep folks in their homes if they were facing... And would it be all evictions or is it a particular... I'm just trying to ferret out like what what would the program look like? Well, I think you'd set criteria for the program. I think it could be a collaboration between the city and the county if possible, but at a minimum, the city should play a greater role in setting criteria and not just on its own, but involving the voices and insights of people who have previously faced evictions, you know, or people who've been displaced from their homes, people who've had to live in homeless shelters. That's something different that I would bring to city hall. So earlier you mentioned my background, you know, in NAACP with black lives matter, um, which were great experiences, but before being involved with those two entities, I was a law professor for mm-hmm. 14 years. I've been a civil rights attorney for longer than that. And in those roles, I had a chance to do a significant amount of community engagement. So anytime um, people had an issue in the community and they connected with the civil rights legal clinic that I ran at St. Thomas Law School, we would hear their concerns. We would have um community engagement events where we would have a chance to listen to what the people had to say and their perspectives would go into our research and it would also go into whatever policy recommendations that we would be making to government entities about what needed to change. What I found in that experience is that most of the time government sees community involvement as an afterthought or something needing to happen on the periphery. It's like a box to check or something like that. That Oh, we did it. We did the community engagement and good. Right. But people want to be involved in what happens in, in their government. And I would say that some of the people who have the greatest insights, 
who have voices that we need to hear from are those who are experiencing the impacts of poverty, racial discrimination, and marginalization. So why aren't individuals who are in those situations allowed a seat at the table? Why aren't they being heard at City Hall? Um, why aren't their insights being incorporated into some of the um, policy decisions that are being made. That's the type of energy that I would bring to the city, making sure the voices of everyday ordinary people are being heard and being taken seriously. That, uh, I mean, this question of uh, engaging uh, folks is something I'm really interested and passionate about. I mean, it's why we started the theater of public policy in part to try and, you know, make some of these things more engaging for a wider and broader audience. So I'm curious, how, how do you, do that potentially as mayor and maybe uh there's uh, aspects you could point to or or, uh, show us from when you were doing the law clinic and things so uh you know how how do you try and get folks who haven't traditionally been at the table part of the process get them in to uh be there uh not only get them to be there but maybe bring the table to them what is the actual sort of work on the ground look like Absolutely. So I think it depends on the situation, depends on the issue that we're seeking to address. So let's take, for example, a recent issue that we're dealing with right now. And that is the fact that the um, police chief, Chief Harto, was um, forced to resign from her position, which left a void in the sense of trying to identify new leadership. And so today a decision is being made about the appointment of the new chief, um, Madeira Arredondo, also known as Rondo. So I personally support Rondo coming in as the new chief. I think that he's the right person at the right time for this job. At the same time, I realize that the current process does not allow for adequate community input and community voice into the situation. Ideally, what you would like to see happen when the city is making a major appointment, especially an appointment for a position that has caused some type of controversy, you want to make sure to convene community stakeholders. So in addition to city council members doing their job and vetting the candidate, why not have a public forum with the community where community members have a chance to speak to the person who is um, contending to become the new chief, be able to ask that person questions about their vision as the police chief, their vision for the police department, and what they would do differently and better than what we've seen in the past. That way you begin the process of community building. And it also puts the chief in the mindset that he or she is a servant to the public first, not a servant to the status quo, not a servant to the powers that be, but a servant to the people who are impacted by policing decisions that are being made. And so uh, we have, you know, the, I, I th- is part of what you're pointing to, this would be different than, you know, the public hearings or whatnot that we have now. So these would look different and they would operate differently. So I, help Absolutely. Us put some, yeah, uh, some framing around. What would that look like then? I mean. So public hearings. So if you've ever attended a public hearing at City Hall, there is a set agenda. Yeah. Typically with a set amount of time allowing for public commentary. And it's just people coming up to a microphone for a short period of time voicing their concerns, opinions, et cetera. That's not the same thing as engaging in community dialogue where maybe you are sitting in a room where, you know, there's a round table discussion going on the way that the chairs are positioned, promote community building. Yeah. And there's an opportunity for some, some exchange to happen, some give and take 
between the people who are, let's say, sitting on a panel or in the case of um, the person who might become the next police chief, if, if he's sitting at a table in the front, people have a chance to actually ask questions in real time and hear responses. Yeah. Right now, the current process, it, it's, um, it's not reciprocal in that regard. It's just someone kind of, you know, people are talking to mm-hmm. or talking at city council, expressing their opinions, but we don't get the type of real time feedback that's necessary to help folks formulate their perspective. So I would love to see more of that where city, the uh, city council members, where the mayor actually regularly go out into the community and sometimes even forming community groups and community task forces that are responsible for giving input into the decision-making. So back when I was president of the Minneapolis NAACP, we actually proposed a huge challenge to the um, Minneapolis Public School Board about their selection of a new superintendent. Mm. We actually wound up shutting down the school board meeting um, in which the school board was going to bypass community input and install a new superintendent. They were going to vote you know, right on the spot without people having a chance to weigh in. So we felt that we had no choice but to shut down that school board meeting. And by shutting it down, it just meant standing up, you know, in the, in the front of the room, um, chanting and giving speeches about why there should be community voice, why we didn't want to see um, the school board take matters into their own hands in a situation of this magnitude. And so after that, they said, well, you know, what is it that you all are looking for? And we said, we're simply looking for justice. We're looking for a fair community process. We're looking for parents, teachers, stakeholders, young people to have input into the selection of the new superintendent. And so after that happened, the school board actually pushed pause on the process and they took in the information from the Minneapolis NAACP and worked to develop a community-based process that happened over a period of time and that allowed community members to actually interview and vet the candidates and to submit information to the school board about their first choice and why that to me is a clear example of how government stakeholders can strategically engage the community and, and make people feel as though they're a part of the process. Uh, There's something, uh, this is slightly tangential to this, but I have thought about it. If you're elected mayor it is entirely possible, maybe not likely, but that you it would be your roles would be reversed someday. Maybe somebody would be uh, protesting you uh, because that sort of naturally happens when you end up in a position of authority. And that would be so, I don't know, weird, like all of a sudden now you're on the other side of it. Um, have you I don't know. Have you thought about like uh, how, what it, what would that uh, mean? Like, uh, it, it, and do you then as a mayor sort of encourage that? Do you say like, yeah, this meeting, even though I'm the mayor and, you know, I'm running it, this should get shut down. You know, there might be circumstances in which people are so enraged or upset about an issue in which they feel that government leaders have uh, ignored what they have to say, that sometimes you have to push the brakes on your agenda as a government leader. Yeah. So I understand that, you know, as being someone on the other side who, you know, as at times very frustrated, you know, with the way in which government operates and the fact that people typically don't have a voice in the process, I would actually do my best to ensure that we allow adequate time for people to speak both in and outside of formal meetings. And also, as I said before, setting up meaningful, authentic, 
in community engagement processes where people have a voice long before the ultimate decision is made. So I think that that is what leads to a lot mm-hmm. of the frustration. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I focus on community building, community engagement, making sure that people have a voice and making sure that I'm doing my best to make decisions that are in the interest of justice and not just in the interest of political expediency. So uh, we've already touched on a batch of the things that we've been wanting to ask about, but I'd love to circle back to the affordable housing piece because it's really uh, become a a big part of this campaign. A lot of folks are talking about it, and we got a lot of questions when we put out of it. So you've already talked a little bit about uh, moving some of the resources toward that. Um, I'm wondering uh, how else would that program would trying to increase affordable housing look under a Levy Pounds administration? Um, What would be different than it is now, potentially, if you were mayor? Well, I think one of the things that did not happen before was a strategic plan being put in place to make sure that we're not gentrifying certain communities um, in Minneapolis, particularly areas of the north side that are experiencing gentrification. And you ensure that you're not gentrifying those communities by making sure that there's a certain number of affordable housing units that are available, um, making sure that there are policies in place that hold slumlords accountable, for example, when they're ready to push people out of the community. We're seeing that happen a lot. You know, not necessarily some of the people are slumlords and some are landlords who are looking to make more money. Um, in a very tight um, housing market. And so um, one of the things that is necessary is for the city to have more leverage with those landlords. We saw this happen um, in a case involving Lisa Bender, um, who is a city council member, um, in which um, um, an ownership group of uh, rental properties had a previous connection to Lisa Bender. They had supported her campaign in the past and she had a relationship with them. And so that particular, those particular owners had sent letters out to tenants saying that there were going to be dramatic rent increases. And so those community members and those residents organized and um, they were trying to figure out what to do. Lisa Bender attended that meeting And from my understanding, as she was hearing concerns by residents, she actually reached out to the um, owners of the property and had some type of exchange with them. Well, by the time it was all said and done, they agreed to actually freeze, you know, the the amount of the rents, you know, it was covered in in the media um, in a couple of different articles. I thought that that was a very powerful demonstration of what uh, city leaders can do when they have a, a pre-existing relationship um, with some of these property owners, when they're able to leverage those relationships for what is in the best interest of the people. Many of the city council members, if not all, should have that same type of influence uh, when dealing with um, folks who own property within their particular wards. I don't think that that's currently the case, but it needs to be the case. I've heard plenty of stories of elderly people um, immigrant populations being pushed out of their apartment buildings um, without adequate notice of rent increases. Yeah, you know we we know that it's difficult to um, have rent caps because of you know what the law says, but that's something I think should be revisited. Do you think with the legislature? Some folks have asked about um, 
rent control in Minneapolis. I mm-hmm. mean, is that something that you would think that the city should at least pursue or look into if they can under state law? Absolutely. I think that the city has to be more vigilant and more proactive about going uh, to the state, about making the connection with legislators who might have some empathy about the affordable housing crisis that is impacting the city, but also our region and pushing them to do the right thing, to make changes to the laws. And that's not the only law. That's one important law that needs to be addressed. But another law has to do with um, the fact that in Minnesota, there are no residency requirements for police officers. Mm. So you have um, in Minneapolis over 90% of officers who do not live in the city of Minneapolis, which is creating a whole host of issues. You have folks coming in, patrolling the community, from suburban communities, from outstate Minnesota, who have no real nexus to the people that they're supposed to protect and serve. That means that there's not a, a, a strong of an, of an opportunity for building positive police community relations. That means that people may be less apt to cooperate when a major incident happens because they don't know the officers who are patrolling their communities. So would you, if you, uh, and I've, talked with uh, folks uh, about this and the counter that they say to this, because at first blush, I think a lot of folks are like, oh, of course, a police officer who patrols Minneapolis should live in Minneapolis. The counter that I've heard is, well, uh, if you're a police officer and you live in the city you patrol, then you're always on duty, that you're basically, you never get to go home because your work comes with you because everybody knows oh you know sergeant jenny is the police officer and we'll just go and knock on her door whenever and so a lot of police officers end up leaving not living in the city they work in for that reason because it's high stress but so you could say that about any position that's paid that is one that's notable or of leadership that's like saying city council members shouldn't live in the city of minneapolis because they're always going to be on duty Yeah. yeah You are on duty because you've been placed in that. So would you, if you were mayor, would you uh, try – we've had some folks say that they would do an incentive program, like, mm-hmm. or would it be an actual mandate, like if you're working no, new ones? No, it can't that, be. Yeah. It can't be a mandate because of state law that um, does not allow for you know residency requirements. So you can incentivize police to move into the city. Uh, But you can also try to challenge the state laws. I mean, I have experience with that from my role um, as a law professor and a civil rights attorney going to the state legislature to challenge laws and bills that I think um, may have a negative impact on the public and sometimes actually putting forward um, initiatives and ideas for bills that would be um, positively received by the community. So, for example, um, when you look at the... Um, body camera situation. We That all came to surface after Justine DeMond was killed by police where everybody was wondering, well, why weren't the police wearing their body cameras? Mm-hmm. You even had, you know, the chief, the mayor saying, well, we don't know. And the reality is they don't know because of the, the policy that allowed for so much discretion on the part of officers to turn their body cameras on and off. Now, I was at the state legislature when the body camera bill bill was being heard. And I was one of a group of public policy advocates that argued against the current iteration of the body camera bill because it was a very pro-police bill. It gave a lot of discretion to each jurisdiction to determine when officers would have to turn their cameras on and off, how long data would be stored, et cetera, um, and how the data could be used. I just thought 
you know, this is going too far. There's not enough public input to make sure that we're striking a balance between what's in the best interest of the public, the victim and law enforcement. And so as a result of that bill, it allowed the city of Minneapolis to, or the Minneapolis police department to put a body camera policy in place that gave way too much discretion to police. That to me is hugely problematic. Number one, the civilian over, what is it? The civilian review oversight council had actually recommended changes to the city's proposed body camera policy, trying to address those matters of discretion and also bringing in best practices. The police department did not take those, um, recommendations seriously. And so we have a breakdown between again, what's in the best interest of the public versus what law enforcement thinks is in its own best interest. So in the, since the shooting of, uh, of the Justine shooting, the, they have, uh, the now new chief, uh, Rondo has announced some new policies for body cams. Do you think that's an improvement? Do you think it goes far enough? What else should happen? No, it doesn't go far enough. That is, um, a knee jerk reaction to um, a very embarrassing situation that happened to the city of Minneapolis. It's not enough to suddenly say all officers now must have on their body cameras. We know for, you know, must turn their body cameras on. There was just a recent incident in downtown Minneapolis in which officers came to the scene of a club um, to try to break up, you know, a fight between a bouncer and um, a patron. And they were in the process as this was unfolding of turning their body cameras on. And a bystander captured the a bouncer punching a patron in the head. So there was violence between them and the police were standing there. One of them was trying to put on his body camera at the time. So, so that's, just putting a policy in place as a knee-jerk reaction is yeah. not enough. So what, what do we do? I mean, what, what, well, how do we change it? Well, you go back to the recommendations that the um, Police Civilian Review Oversight Council. I hope I'm saying this <laughs> e- the yeah, name easy right. for you to say. Yeah. Right. I think the PCOC. Uh, but the OC. That was a good show. Uh, different. But yeah. <laughs> right. So they have, they have a lot of sound policy recommendations that should be incorporated into the current body camera policy. So that means having folks from PCOC um, and community members who are sort of acting as watchdogs and law enforcement and government stakeholders sitting at the table together to identify which of those policies should be incorporated into the current body camera policy for the city. That's not happening right now. That needs to happen. And and it needs to happen with a sense of urgency because if we're now only focused on everyone turning on their cameras all the time, that doesn't get to the heart of the other policy matters that are related to this issue and making sure again, that the public is protected, that people have a chance to view data, you know, um, provide challenges if, if inaccurate information is coming forward. And then also the other key is making sure that, body camera footage is not primarily being used as a surveillance tool mm. so that if someone commits a crime, police are able to potentially bring in prosecutors to bring that footage into court and use that against a suspect. When the reality is that we were sold on the idea of body cameras to protect the public, not to assist in prosecuting people, but that is the potential of what could happen. And that was one of the things that I testified about at the legislature. Uh, I want to go back to something uh, you started to touch on a few minutes ago. It's this idea of uh, 
bringing more investment into parts of the city that haven't had it. Uh, you know, a lot of folks immediately point to the north side and trying to do that in a way that doesn't result in gentrification. Um, actually, even just as a start, I'm always just curious, like, how do you define gentrification? I, because it's sort of a term that we use a lot. And I think a lot of us sort of grapple with what exactly it, it means. Well, I would say that gentrification, you know, to get to get to the heart of the matter, it's about policies that are in place, decisions that are made that push certain people out of a community, typically people of color. And you know when poor people of color and you know that a neighborhood is being gentrified when you have a lot of new development that is coming in development that is outside of the price point to the people who currently live in that neighborhood as new development comes into a neighborhood we know that property values will increase in those communities which means that if people can't afford the rise in property taxes that they are going to potentially lose their homes or be forced to sell um you know to sell and move yeah. out of the community and then if someone is living in an apartment building for, uh, per se or if they are a renter if that property owner decides, well, I can get a lot more money by selling this property or renting at a higher rate, then that means that that lower income renter is going to be pushed out of that community. And we know the folks who are going to move in are those who can't afford right. market value um, of the properties and or the new developments that are coming in. They're going to be able to afford high end coffee shops and boutiques and restaurants. So there, there have been a couple of large development projects uh, that have launched in the north side just in the last year or two. I'm wondering, how do you, are those good? Are those outside folks coming in and that's going to create problems? How do you view those? Is that a model or is it something to avoid in the future? Well, it depends on the development project. It depends on the amount of affordable housing um, that has been preserved within a particular unit and making sure that it really is affordable because sometimes the way that we define affordable housing is actually not affordable for those who are in a lower um, socioeconomic strata um, or the working poor. And so we need to be careful even about how we define affordable housing. It could be someone far removed you know, making the decision that a certain amount is affordable when that's not really the reality for the people who want to live in that community. Do you have a definition for affordable? Sometimes people say this percentage of the poverty line or whatnot. I mean, where where should that be? Well, I, if I remember correctly, folks say that typically you should not spend more than a third of your income, you know, on housing. Uh, for some people, when you have a very low income, um, even spending a third of that income could cost someone to... Uh, fall deeper into poverty. And so we need to make sure that we have adequate um, social supports in place. But at the same time, we need to make sure that there is adequate uh, economic opportunity available, people being able to go to work, make a livable wage and support their families so that, um, you know, there's stability within yeah. the home, which leads to more stability in the community. So how do, uh, this is sort of an unfairly vague question, but how do we do that? Uh, so if we're looking at sort of the North side as uh, a case study for uh, some, uh, some of these different forces pushing up against each other, you want to create new economic opportunities. You don't want to do it in a way where it's going to push people who are already there out uh, talk to us uh, under uh, Levy Pound's mayorship. What what are some of the first steps that happen? What are some of the actual policies or things that you do that move that forward? Well, I think, number one, you need to convene the people who are being impacted by the new development and not just assuming that, 
all development is good development, you know, and just because someone has the leverage to pull lawmakers behind closed doors doesn't mean that they're operating by standards that are in the best interest of the public. And so you need to have folks who are watchdogs, if you will, who are paying attention to the development that is being approved for the city. And they're asking the tough questions regarding affordable housing units. How is this going to cause displacement in the community? What's going to happen to other businesses in the community, especially mom and pop shops, small minority owned businesses, et cetera. Um, in addition to that, I also think that solutions need to be research driven. So I love data. I love, um, crunching numbers, looking at information. Now I know what to get you for Christmas. It's just a spreadsheet or <laughs> well, something. Well, it's important, you know, to to be able to um, think about this notion of evidence-based practices, think about the, the role that data plays in helping you make decisions. And so that might mean looking at the number of affordable housing units or lack thereof and seeing based on the income levels within this pocket of the city, is this truly affordable? If not, then that means that the city is going to be negotiating with developers to uh, make some adjustments so that those the folks who fall maybe in the lower income strata can afford to live in a particular unit. You know, do you, so, you see what I'm I, saying? I think so. I, I, uh, I'm still with the levers that the mayor has in terms of uh, negotiating with developers or whatnot. So then, so it's, it's not just it's, the mayor; it's the it's, mayor no, in conjunction with. City council members. City council, as well. and, but uh, so as a Minneapolis government, so is it uh, putting more money into uh, an affordable the affordable housing trust fund or affordable housing programs? Is it uh, writing different regulations for the developers or what it can look like? Uh, maybe just talk us through what some of those just real practical terms look like. Well, it's a combination of those things. I don't think that you can take a one size fits all approach when it comes to addressing the affordable housing crisis. It's a multi-pronged approach. As I mentioned earlier, it has to involve community input. We can't discount that. That's currently being discounted, uh, and people are feeling as though they're not being heard. And And they're not being heard until a crisis happens and they have to assemble and try to figure out what are we going to do because we got these letters saying if we don't pay double or triple the rent, we're forced out. That should not be the case. And and it's incumbent upon the city when they are um, engaging in urban planning and development that they're paying attention to these issues. It shouldn't just be who can afford to come into the city and set up shop. It should be what kind of a city do we want to have? What kind of neighborhoods do we want to have? Who currently lives here? Who wants to remain here? What is affordable? And how do we make sure that we keep those rents affordable? Can I... Uh- I haven't asked this question quite this way, but I'm wondering about almost flipping the gentrification piece. Because we've asked some folks about uh, should affordable housing be all throughout the city? And almost everybody said, yes, we should have affordable housing all throughout the city. But I wonder, uh, you know, is there a piece then where it's uh, we should be trying to encourage, uh, you know, uh, more diverse mixed neighborhoods. And by diverse, I mean uh, socioeconomically, racially, where people are from, all throughout the city. Um, What a lot of people in a lot of neighborhoods might say, well, you're changing my neighborhood then, right? Like I'm used to my neighborhood being a bunch of single family, middle class homes. And by putting up, you know, affordable housing or a high rise or something, it's different. So how do you uh, negotiate, I guess, that, kind of change in different parts of the city? Well, I think it depends on what parts of the city you're talking about, because one of the things we have to remember is this notion of white flight. 
So anytime you have a neighborhood in which it's the majority, if not all white people who live there um, and families of color start to move in. What that doesn't, that's nowhere in Minneapolis. That's that's in many places. And you see white families start to move out. And so when those white families start to move out, there's going to be a whole host of issues. Number one, because white people in Minneapolis have a much higher um, income on average than their counterparts of color. They have um, a high, higher rates of home ownership than their counterparts of color. And homeowners typically have a greater say in what happens in their community than mm-hmm. renters. So we were already setting up a situation where there's going to be some type of disadvantage, economic disadvantage, um, uh, political yeah. disadvantage, social capital disadvantage that's going to happen in a situation like that. And so in order to level the playing field again, you have to weigh the competing yeah. voices, demands, um, and pros and cons in a given situation. But we should not force people of color into pockets of the city in which they may not be welcome. We have to be honest about that. Just because someone has a Pollyannish idea of, oh, you know, we should all hold hands, and that's not the re- way the real world is working right now. I have seen people of color who have moved into suburban communities seeking a better quality of life, seeking um, higher uh, quality of uh, education for their children, only to be treated like second and third class citizens within those communities, only to have their children being discriminated against, only to apply for jobs and to be told that they are not qualified for the position. And so we cannot continue to set people up like that. If they are in a community in which there is a high percentage of people of color. That's not necessarily the problem. The problem is the lack of, of economic opportunity that's helping to fuel um, public safety issues, helping to fuel higher rates of poverty um, and economic disenfranchisement. That is the key issue. We're used to enclaves. When you look at other communities of color, you can look at the Somali community, the Hmong community. You can look at Rondo, you know, the yeah. community in St. Paul that was, Uh, an African-American community that was prosperous, that was divided by the freeway. Those are enclaves, cultural enclaves that are set up that actually have more of a protective mechanism for um, particular ethnic groups. That's interesting. So you're saying that, 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 uh, that there's something to value in that, that we shouldn't, shouldn't necessarily be trying to, I would just like to say, uh, even though you said that the world isn't all made up of just, we're holding hands. We have been holding hands throughout this entire interview, all of us. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I want to circle back to something that you touched on that's um, of a lot of interest to me. You mentioned a lot of this stuff is not just the mayor doing it. It's mayor and city council. One of the things that's really interesting about you is that you're running. You're not running for the DFL endorsement. You're running just as. An but I am a DFL candidate. You are a DFL candidate. You're running as an independent. I'm wondering. No, I'm running as a DFL candidate who didn't seek endorsement. No one got the endorsement. No one got the endorsement. So all of us are running as DFL candidates. All running as DFL. We're all the same level playing field. Yes. uh, Well, that kind of that kind of upends my question I was going to ask. I'll ask it anyway, which is just you end up in uh, as mayor and, and you um, you didn't go for the endorsement or whatnot. I wonder if you've thought about uh, how working with the city council that, you know, are folks who did all uh, pursue their endorsement from the DFL and whatnot with a couple of exceptions. Um, yeah. it, it does, that shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter, you don't think? It, no, you know, why would it matter? 
I'm just, I don't know how political alliances work very well. I mean, it's, this is all new to me. I mean, if I'm a DFO candidate, that should be enough. If I'm bringing sound policy positions to the table, that should be enough. If I'm bringing experience to the table, that should be enough. Okay. Well, uh, that, that quite, quite answered my question. Uh, so let's, uh, touch on a couple other things. Uh, we have talked a little bit about police, uh, already and particularly with body cams and some of that kind of stuff. I'm wondering though, what else looks different, uh, if you're mayor in terms of policing, does training look different? Do policies around the police look different? Um, recruiting or training, what what of that actually can you give us like the very the meat of what what changes? Well, I would say that um, one of the things that would change is the fact that I would push for a community policing model um, and work with the chief to make sure that we have that in the city. Right now, we don't have a strong model of community policing. Do you think that what we have now is just sort of window dressing? Of yes, yeah. this is absolutely window dressing. There are national models of community policing that are effective. So we would have to determine what is the most effective model for the city of Minneapolis and to implement that model. Can, I, I just want, oops, I, can you just give us maybe one practical of like, this is something that, you know, is window dressing now. This is something that I point to another city is doing or I've seen somewhere else that we should be following that. Like mm-hmm. something very, that we, people can sort of wrap their heads around what would be different. So when you look at um, what's happening now, we see community policing as police showing up and let's say barbecuing in a park, you know, handing out hot dogs, handing out bikes to kids. That's not community policing. That could be a form of public service. It could be a great PR opportunity for the department, but it doesn't get to the heart of what some other jurisdictions are doing. So when you think about community policing, that means you strategically have certain officers walking the beat in certain communities, getting to know the people who live there, building relationships. That way, when major crimes occur, people are comfortable picking up the phone, having a conversation with those police officers who walk the beat. Why? Because they're in relationship together. You know, right now on the north side, what I typically see are officers driving around all day, not walking the beat, not getting to know the people. Um, And that means that we don't know the police. We don't know who's patrolling our neighborhood. We don't feel safe making phone calls, which I think is unfortunate and should not continue to be the case. But there's a good reason why. And it's because there's not a strong connection between many of the police officers and communities of color. Now, there are some officers who have been able to build trust, such as Rondo, who is potentially poised to become the next chief. But there are many, many others Um, who people in the African-American community interface with on a regular basis. They don't know their names. They don't know anything about them. Um, And the flip side of that means that when officers are coming into the black community and they don't know the people, they don't know anything about the people, they may be more likely to racially profile people or to stereotype them or to treat them more harshly than they deserve to be treated as a poor African-American person. And so from a, a policy standpoint, One of the things that I have pushed for in the past um, is taking uh, some of the low-level ordinances off of the book, so low-level criminal ordinances. In 2015, I had my law students conduct research on all of the low-level criminal ordinances in the city of Minneapolis. We identified what we thought were the low-hanging fruit, and that that was the law against spitting and one against lurking and one against three or more people congregating on the sidewalk. 
Now, there were other laws that shouldn't be on the books, but those were the three we identified. The law against spitting was put in place in the 1800s, <laughs> back when there was a tuberculosis scare in the city of Minneapolis. They thought you could transmit well, tuberculosis wait. And so spitting. we got rid of that. Now what if we have a big tuberculosis outbreak? Like the, the- We still can't transmit it through spitting. And so <laughs> the, the challenge was that um, that law was on the books, shouldn't have been, and officers were using it as a pretext to stop, frisk, and harass young African-American men. So a young black man walking down the street, an officer sees him spitting. That's just cause under the law to stop him. I saw you spitting. Let me see your ID. Let me test Where you for you tuberculosis. <laughs> so, but that was real. And yeah. then the same with lurking. No one could give um, a viable definition of what lurking even was. And in most jurisdictions in our research, we found that lurking was unconstitutional. And so we brought our research to city hall. We met with city council members and we said, these laws need to be off the books. One of the things that is a byproduct of having um, petty offenses on the books means that law enforcement resources are being ineffectively utilized. So we have major part one crimes in the city that aren't being solved, but you have police walking around stopping people for spitting. What kind of sense does that make, given how large our public safety expenditures are? Um, and so, so we actually, like I said, brought the research forward. We helped mobilize other advocacy groups to come to City Hall. We got buy-in. We started a um, public service campaign around it, got people to testify. And then ultimately, those two laws were repealed by a vote of two of uh, 12 to 1. Only the City Council President, Barb Johnson, voted against it. And then months later, City Council took it upon themselves to repeal that third law against three or more people congregating on the sidewalk. And so I would bring that type of energy to City Hall where, it's, again, it's evidence-based, it's research-based, and it's basically saying instead of remaining trying to be tough on crime, let's get smart on crime and have practical policies in place that um, make Minneapolis a more livable city for everyone. There are other laws on the books that shouldn't be on there, and I would make sure that we did an assessment and um, that we brought forward research and ideas about which laws need to be removed. I would also want to see the formation of a a criminal justice reform task force that looks at our criminal justice laws, policies, um, our policing system, our training, um, what happens in our um, criminal justice system in the city of Minneapolis and make recommendations based on the statistics and the data so that we can have a more, um, comprehensive system that is much more fair and also much more efficient with the resources that we have. Uh, we're getting toward the end of our time. Uh, I, there's just one other sort of large area I've been asking folks about, which is uh, this question of Minneapolis being the largest city in Minnesota, in the region, uh, and the role then of being the leader of that city and being sort of a leader within that region then. And so how do you think about uh, what the mayor's responsibility is in developing relationships with uh, those other, uh, whether it's, you know, our suburbs or St. Paul or greater Minnesota? You talked a little bit about, you know, going to the state with different things. Uh, and, and the county. And the county. So, and I've worked in St. Paul as well on um, public policy matters, St. Paul and Ramsey County. So what what does that look like? Is it is it that, you know, you, as mayor, you you 
just develop these relationships with the other mayors or is it uh is it something more complex than that i i this is again somewhere i've never been a mayor of a city i don't know what it's like so how do you how do you think about what that part of the job is like and how you'd approach it well i think that part of it has to be about setting the pace um as far as leadership is concerned and so i'll give an example of something i did um when i made my announcement that i was running for mayor I I articulated my unequivocal support for 15 now and saying that, you know, we need to have 15 now in the city of Minneapolis. I have been working with uh, 15 now, um, you know, over the last year or two when I was NAACP president. And so I understood from hearing the stories the importance of a higher minimum wage. I also knew that I had opponents who weren't in support of 15 now. And so it helped to apply political pressure as a leader by saying this is what needs to happen. And you see ultimately through continued public pressure, through political pressure, um, the current mayor and Jacob Fry both lined up in support of 15 now with no tip penalty. That's a demonstration of leadership at debates. I've talked about the fact that I agree with mayor Hodges about the need for a regional approach when it comes to a higher minimum wage, but saying Minneapolis can't wait for St. Paul. We can't wait for Richfield. We can't wait for Brooklyn park. We have to make a decision about what is in the best interest of the people of the city, take in all of the information and then move forward. Because sometimes a leader has to step out front even when it is unpopular and do the right thing. And so that is a role that I've already had to undertake um, as a, um, a, a, a champion for civil rights. And it's one that I would continue to take, but I would also identify ways to collaborate with the other mayors, other leaders and community stakeholders. And so how $15 minimum wage is one that is really pointed with this question. So now that Minneapolis is moving towards $15 minimum wage, how as a mayor do you try and maybe make it more regional? Do you try and get some of the uh, uh, suburbs and surrounding cities to to come along with that? What's what's the role of the mayor in that negotiation? Well, I think it depends on the mayor and how strong your voice is and how willing you are to convene other stakeholders and talk about what is at stake if we do not raise the, the minimum wage level. Because we are talking about an affordable housing crisis that will be exacerbated if people cannot afford the rent. We are talking about impacts to children when they're being displaced from their homes because their families can no longer live, you know, in, in the places that they have called home. We are talking about greater levels of investment in public safety when people are resorting to survival crimes because they cannot um, afford to put food on the table. So we're going to be spending money one way or another. We might as well be proactive about spending money on things that are going to yield positive results for the community as opposed to some of the negative results that we're talking about. And so a mayor has to be able to be a leader in those situations, a servant leader, you know, who is sitting down hearing the concerns from some of the other mayors, some of the other leaders and, and, and engaging in problem solving to say, you know, how do we push against the status quo and how do we make sure that we are taking into account what's in the best interest of the people and how do we make sure that we are willing to put our own political ambitions aside for what's in the best interest of the residents that we are supposed to serve. 
So that is the core of who I am and what I'm about. And that's the energy and spirit that I would bring forward. And it's not much different from what I've already been doing as a lay person, trying to help push the conversation towards equity, towards justice, towards doing the right thing, towards using research and towards uh, refusing to give up in the face of adversity. So the last question that we've been asking everyone, and it was a question Brandon came up with is, okay, uh, let's say you're mayor and you can do one big policy thing that you can get a mulligan on. You can take it, if it doesn't work out, you can take it back. So what's one thing you would do that would be super high risk, but super high reward uh, if you, and again, you can do it and, you know, maybe because it would have huge, great impacts, but it's a high risk of maybe not working. So we're going to give you in this magical scenario, you can take it back. And then it's like, it never happened. I would take the majority of empty lots in the city, um, work with the developers to build low cost homes that are beautiful, that are energy efficient on those lots and offer them for a dollar to um the poor and the working poor that is a that is like one of you that was a very good answer not all of our uh guests have taken quite as good advantage i feel like of this so uh some of them kind of used it to talk about something else or not really dream that big that's a very big like so uh taking a whole bunch of uh, and with like what kind of houses i don't know we can just keep dreaming about yeah, them beautiful beautiful you know, energy efficient homes i mean yeah. which solves a whole other host of environmental issues as well and a, and a dollar each so a dollar each you, just like we've offered land for a dollar to developers you know with very asking very little in return why can't we offer homes for a dollar to people in need and give them a chance to build wealth and build equity and uh, set the pace for the next generation and their families. Wow, the, that is a wonderful note uh, to end on. I want to say a tremendous thank you uh, to Nakima Levy-Pounds for uh, joining us on this podcast. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I, I still never know exactly what to say to folks. Uh, like, good luck on the campaign trail. Like, sure, have fun. that's fine. Yeah, yeah. good luck uh, is fine. Okay, good luck on the campaign trail. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank Dan. you. Thank you for listening. These were recorded live at Folklore. Folklore is a digital experience company with offices in Minneapolis and San Diego. They specialize in digital strategy, user experience, design, and development for small businesses and large corporations alike. Learn more at folklore.digital. Our music was composed by Keegan Fraley. If you want to find out more about the theater of public policy or come to an upcoming show, you can find us on the web at www.t2p2.net.